I think we're aware of that, you know, about the individualness of American culture from like a human and social perspective. But I don't think until I worked in agriculture, I realized how much that also means that we are like separate from nature and we are not a part of something larger. And I think being out in the vineyards really, really made it clear to me in a way that I can't necessarily put into words, but I just have this like large sense of knowing that we are a part of something so much larger. Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. Hello, this is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The Organic Wine Podcast is brought to you by Centralis Wine. Centralis is my winery based here in central Los Angeles, where we've converted our urban lot into a permaculture wine garden that we call Crenshaw Crew. I started Centralis as an ecologically centered winery because I realized that whether you want to be or not, you are a farmer and the vineyard doesn't end at the edge of the rows of vines. You can buy our wines and learn more at centraliswine.com. That's C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. And if you join our wine club, you'll get access to our Crenshaw Crew wines. My guest for this episode is Gabriella Fontanesi, and you are in for a treat. Gabriella has one of the most unique and unusual paths into wine that I've ever encountered. Because of that, she brought questions and perspectives that have incredible power to transform the way you see and think about this industry. And that led her on a very interesting journey of being a vineyard worker, and now to Mexico, where she recorded this interview so that she could improve her Spanish and one day conduct wine tastings for Spanish-speaking farm workers here in California. Some of the points she brings up include the laws that surprisingly don't apply to farm workers and why that is, how our separation from farming is what allows for the exploitation of the people who do the farm work, the Eurocentric nature of formal wine education, the troubling idea of objectivity in wine tasting, and if that can really account for the treatment of those who grow the wine, the opportunity that wine has to bring change because of the narratives it tells, and so much more. Gabriella is a nonstop force of insight, and this interview is packed with some of the most important ideas we can grapple with as an industry. If you get nothing else out of it, I hope you'll be inspired at least by Gabriella to ask better, harder questions and to keep asking them regardless of where they take you. Gabriella would like to give a shout out to two great organizations that she supports. The first is Ahivoy, which provides mentoring and scholarships for vineyard stewards in Oregon. You can learn more about them at ahivoyoregon.org or at ahivoyoregon. That's A-H-I-V-O-Y. And the second organization is the Botanical Bus, a bilingual mobile herb clinic. You can find more at thebotanicalbus.com or at botanical.bus. And Gabriella can be contacted through her Instagram at gp. Fontanesi. That's G, P is in Peter, F-O-N-T-A-N-E-S-I. Enjoy. Good morning, Gabriella. Thanks for doing this. <laughs> Welcome. My pleasure. Now, can you introduce yourself? I, you know, you're not somebody who, I, I want to say this, I want to say you're not somebody who owns a winery, you're not somebody who's published a book or has a study that they're promoting. So, this is more like there's no ulterior motives to the ideas that you're expressing here other than just your values. And But can you talk a little bit about who you are and like where you came from? Yeah. So 
well, my name is Gabriella Fontanesi, um, <laughs> and I went to UC Davis to study wine. And I think like a unique part of my story is that I went to Davis with like no real purpose or reason for having gone into the wine industry. I wasn't trying or going into wine studies. I was not trying to begin a career in the wine industry. I really went in because I am dyslexic and couldn't study anything that required an immense amount of reading or writing without like being uncomfortable and like really struggling in a way that I didn't want to have to face that, um, I guess that like barrier. Um, And so I knew I was going to study science. And I think just because I had generally been lumped into that academic field because of a learning disability, um, I still had a lot of like passion and interest in things that were not scientific. And so when I heard of the wine major at Davis and found out that it had you know, every imaginable science class, including biochemistry, chemistry, organic chemistry, um, physics, statistics, calculus, material science, like it had it all, um, which was super fascinating to me. I've always been a little bit obsessed by the idea of Renaissance, you know, styles of learning or knowing um, and the intersections of things. And so this major just really felt like an amazing way to do all of the same science courses that would be required for pre-med um but still do something that was a little bit you know what felt a little unscientific wine to me wasn't my first thought when i thought of wine was not oh science clearly right so um, that's how i ended up in davis and in in wine and it wasn't until really my senior year that i even considered going into industry um and what really changed for me, or, or I think it's actually made me interested in the industry itself as a, as a career, um, was an amazingly fortunate opportunity my junior year, uh, where I was selected as one of two green fellowships or fellows at, at Davis. And the way I found myself in that position was I, having come into the wine industry with no background in wine, including no background in agriculture, immediately was like, I want to do something that's going to put me in an agricultural space. And so I found out about the student farm at Davis, which is an amazing space. If you're ever on campus, I highly recommend going and checking out the student farm. It's beautiful. And yeah, can't can't believe enough about it. Awesome. It's also like one of the largest and oldest student farms on in any campus in the U.S. So there's also some really cool history. And um, yeah, I heard about it my (laughs) my freshman year. I applied. I didn't get in, but my big from the rowing team got in. And the year a year later, as on my way to like a physics class, I bumped into her, and she basically was like, "Yo, I don't want to have to do a whole." application process do you still want to do an internship on the student farm and I was like absolutely so (laughs) found myself doing a two-year long internship on the student farm the first year I was an intern the next year I was kind of the mentor of the intern which is a beautiful way of passing kind of like generational knowledge it it's a really funny um it was a really beautiful experience to just see how much knowledge you can learn and pass on with one year's time. Um, 
And I had worked construction before I went into Davis. And so I kind of understood and valued sort of working with my hands and working in manual labor positions. And, um, yeah, so I think like that background in construction just made me really passionate. You know, my goal coming into that space is like, I want to weed this vineyard because it was all hand hand-hoed um hand and my goal was like I'm going to weed this vineyard so well that no one has to weed it for three years you know they only have to throw down (laughs) and I really did I really did actually accomplish that I think it was like the the trauma of having tiled in construction and really seeing how like if you clean your ground lines um then you save yourself seven hours of trying to cut out hard grout the next day um but you have to do it when it's meant to happen like you really have to be on top of it and so Mm. really grouting um taught me a lot about weeding and then (laughs) a little bit obsessed about like really weeding this vineyard um it took me two years to weed the vineyard we did it i had it took me we got about half of it done the first year and then the rest of it done the next year um, maybe it was really a quarter the first year and then the other three quarters the next year, which again goes to show you how much you learn and how quickly you progress. Um, but yeah. that year we didn't have mulch. We ran out of mulch. I think like we usually got mulch from the forest team or the, the people who took care of the arborists, people who took care of trees on campus. And they would, uh-huh. you know, when they removed branches, they would create mulch and we were allowed to use that mulch, but they used it that year, my June, my sophomore year, no, junior year, they used all of it. So I became obsessed with like, how am I going to get mulch? Like this, all my beautiful two years of work, is going to go down the drain if we don't have mulch. And so I saw this green fellowship application. It was an opportunity to do a social justice sustainability project. And when I heard that it was a social justice project, I immediately felt that I was not qualified to apply. And so I didn't. I figured there was going to be a lot of people with much more valuable contributions. But then they extended the deadline. And when I saw them extend the deadline, I was like, cool. I agree that other people may be much more qualified in this space right now. But if nobody's applying, then I'm more qualified than nobody. So <laughs> I applied to get my mulch. I really wanted the mulch. And I really took inspiration from my community that had more experience in social justice. And very, very luckily, earlier in the year, my whole life is full of like random circumstances. Earlier in the year, I went to a community meeting for the student farm because they had burritos and free food is valuable in college. Um, (laughs) And at this I was also there because I was interested in the conversation, but I was also very much there. <laughs> right, <videos>. right. <laughs> like, um, and there was this student, Samuel, who led a conversation about social justice. And I really just sat in on these conversations. And he brought up so many amazing points. He clearly was very experienced, um, or much more so than I was. But one of the things that really stood out in this conversation that I realized I had an opportunity to apply with this fellowship and is what I applied like use my application for was the idea that the student farm internships were all unpaid and there are economic barriers to unpaid internships. Not everyone has financial capacity to take on labor that isn't, isn't equating into like financial gain. Um, And that, you know, that really resonated with me. I saw this, I was getting the fellowship helped get me some funds to be able to afford 
my project, whatever it became, but it also gave me access to some discretionary funds. And so I allocated the majority of those discretionary funds to creating a paid internship. And I got (laughs) the the fellowship, which was honestly (laughs) life-changing, probably one of the more conscious life-changing things I've ever done. Going to Davis was such a random thing that I have no idea how to explain. Like I understand that my dad was the one who heard of the program, but no one knows how my dad heard of the program. So it's a little <laughs> like, hmm, there was something mythical going on, magical. Um, <laughs> I love but that. The, yeah. the fellowship, I like am really glad that I went for it. And it was all just because I happened to be in that space. And that's what really made me aware of wait, being in this space, being in a space that was accessible to me created all of these amazing opportunities, including this fellowship, which had financial and eventually like life-changing impacts. And so I started questioning like, who was this space built for? Who has access to it? You know, who's really here? And like, who who's being catered to? Who's, who is it comfortable to yeah. be here? Um, and so I got the application I applied on making an internship, but I had about, I think it was maybe like four or five months before I really started implementing the paid internship. And during this time, I really started thinking about that question. Like, who was this space made for? And um, what are the ways that it benefits or makes that person feel comfortable or is valuable to that person? And so it became really clear to me that, okay, yes, there's the financial barrier of, of being in this space, but also this space was built for me. I came in with no experience, which is why doing an unpaid internship was so valuable because I gained so much experience, right? I also right. got class credits and that's how they justify the payment, which, you know, is definitely valuable because classes are expensive. Um, but I wasn't ever thinking about that side of thing. I was full blown. I need experience. I don't have experience and I want experience, which then became really ironic to me because this is a generational learning space, right? Where what you bring is what ends up in this space in terms of knowledge. And this Mm. system is built for people who don't bring prior experience. So (laughs) that seems like a really big deficit. And so I started thinking about like, well, there has to be maybe there doesn't have to be, but there should be descendants of farm workers in an agricultural school. There should be descendants of farm workers in the vineyard program, because why would someone who came from inner city LA with no background in wine and no background in agriculture be able to get into this program when someone who's the descendant of a farm worker, of a vineyard worker couldn't, right? So basically on that thought alone, I decided to not necessarily pivot, but expand what I was looking for in this paid internship to also specifically seek out the descendants of farm workers, because I began to realize like one, there weren't many spaces that were specifically catering to the descendants of farm workers, the way that it felt like this space was catering to a nobody from nowhere, um, which just was very ironic. It also became really clear that the descendants of farm workers are going to be bringing in immense amounts of generational knowledge that would benefit a space like the student farm. And lastly, it became really clear that the descendant of a farm worker deserves to be paid for the knowledge and labor that they're bringing in a way that I don't. Um, And sort of on that, like, just philosophical journey, we did end up hiring 
um, a student who was the descendant of farm workers who had been working in the table grape industry since he was about 13 or 14 years old um, oh, wow. in the Central Valley, which was also really, um, it really like opened my eyes a lot as I started, started to get closer and build a friendship with this person. And um, yeah, it was kind of weird to see this like thought come to reality. And it was also really weird to see how few descendants of farm workers there really were and maybe for I don't know I really can't give a great number that I feel confident on but it had to have been for every five to ten random people like me there and maybe not random I definitely was more random than most people um (laughs) but (laughs) people who didn't necessarily have agricultural or winemaking experience for every ten if not every single student in the program was more like me. And there was one or two people who really came and were the descendants of either seller or vineyard labor. And this, while this was happening, I was also kind of becoming aware of from day one in the program while I loved it. And it is like literally one of the coolest things you could ever study. It's like winemaking at Davis. It's really fun. It's really beautiful. Um, It's very stimulating, but I always felt uncomfortable. And it took me until about my junior year to start figuring out what was making me uncomfortable. And it was the fact that I had grown up um, a white person, but in a largely Hispanic community and went to Davis and realized that the wine industry is a largely Hispanic industry, uh, but there was very little Hispanic representation in in the program. and I am very glad to say that there has been a lot of progress and movement in this space, um, especially in the recent past. So I'm glad I'm glad to say that this isn't just like a, a thing that I noticed a couple of years ago and nothing's happened. Um, <laughs> but it was it just really it just really struck me that like I had grown up in a world, in a culture, in a society, you know, much larger than Davis or wine that had given me so many opportunities to be able to go to a place like Davis when and study something as random and as privileged as wine when a lot of the people you know my closest teammates and friends and classmates hadn't even had the opportunity to necessarily continue to pursue education and then I came into a program that seems like a student with this background a student whose parents have been in wine the way that you know there were a lot of uh, white students who had family in wine like that was what I'd say that's why I always felt a little bit weird is I really came from the outside. Either you were the descendant of someone who was in wine, connected to someone who was in wine, or already knew like this is what you wanted to do. Like somehow you figured it out and you want to be a winemaker or a vineyard manager. And I was the only one there that was like, this seems like a cool study. I'm here to go to college. Um, <laughs> and um, right. with that, it just really it just really stood out to me just how like the lack of representation in that way that I would have expected, you know, it was like a huge advantage if you've been around wine and, yeah. um, and yeah, I, had I mean, it, I'm sure it's doing really well in the program. And I was like, what is happening here? Um, I'm guessing that having that outsider's perspective helped you see some of these things that are more obvious, you know, when, when you just state it like that, you know what I mean? Like uh, when, when you're in a system, you know, and you're not questioning it because you fit into it so well and you're not like the random person. It's, it does seem like 
it's easier to overlook these obvious things. It's so hard to, you know, self-knowledge is really hard to come by. But if you come in with that slight, just that, just a slight, you know, skewed perspective where you aren't coming for the same reasons or, you know, with the same thoughts as other people to it, it gives you that opportunity to sort of look at it fresh and create, you know, new ideas around it. And did you, um, I was going to ask, did you have to write a paper or do anything to defend the ideas that you were presenting? Like, did you have to present in any way? You know, I'm actually really sad that I didn't get to present. Unfortunately, this all really took place in the fall of 2019 and then 2020. Um, So I am one of those unfortunate people who graduated in 2020 um, when there was no like platform for how to do digital school or deal with a global pandemic. So a lot of things um, really... You took took a like a left turn, you know. As as I continued with that yeah. project, I ended up developing an organic vineyard management program, a course with Steve Mathiason, and it was going to be a four part course that we only got to do one of the four sessions. Again, because of the pandemic, and uh-huh. my ultimate goal at the end of this was to lead a big like panel discussion mm-hmm. um, and bring in professionals to to talk about this because this was really not a conversation. Like this was all a conversation that was happening that I was thinking about and participate like creating space uh, for prior to 2020. And it was not there. I mean, there was no academic, what do you call it? Like equivalent to what I was educating myself on, you know, through this journey, I became where way more aware of things like the Fair Labor Act what? and the history of like why farm workers are excluded from the Fair Labor Act and how that's, you know, specifically based on racial bias and racism towards black agricultural workers back in 1938 that has transferred towards Hispanic agricultural workers. Um, and to me, it was always just like, how the hell is this not a part of our academic foundation? If we're going to, you know, theoretically the best wine school in in the world, um, definitely one of the more established ones in the country. How are we not learning about this side of history? How are we supposed to come out, be industry leaders and not... How did you learn about that? uh, Sorry. Just through going on this adventure, through like questioning things and through this project of just like, why? Why does this exist? Why is this system like this? Why are people who I think are more qualified not in this space? Um, And it was, yeah, I think that's why you're bothering to talk to me because for some reason (laughs) you think in this way and um, it's really led me to some really interesting places that I don't think many people um, have gone, you know? And I, I think it's like a weird combination of, who I am and what I've done and, and everything else. And I don't, don't really have a great way of explaining it, but you know, I, when the pandemic did hit, um, I was, I was real quick to just be like, cool, pivot. <laughs> what's, what's new. I had all of these plans, right. There was all of these great things that I wanted to do that aren't going to happen. And I don't want to waste any time trying to make something happen that isn't going to happen. Um, so what, like, what are my new opportunities? And the biggest, let me, thing- let me, uh, let me stop. Sorry, keep that keep that in mind. I just wanted to stop you for a second before we go into the next phase. But I like. I just wanted to footnote one thing or underline one thing that you said, which is that the wine industry is a largely Hispanic industry. And I, I, I mean that in itself. I think for many people is a perspective shift. You know, like if and what 
What do you mean by that when you say that? Yeah, I I feel like if I had to give a percentage of who I actually have seen in the wine industry, whether it's cellar workers, vineyard workers, tractor drivers, uh, cellar hands, cellar masters, the majority of them have all been Hispanic. They, mm-hmm. The top visible wine professionals, yeah, they're white. The tasting room staff tend to be white. There's also, I've also seen a, a significant amount of Hispanic um, wine educators and wine hosts, but I think even in that space, sometimes it, it's a little like you don't necessarily notice or know where someone's from and you adopt a lot of like the the clothes of of like what you expect Napa hosts to look like and things like that. But so I think like a lot of the visible parts of the wine industry, whether it's the narrative or the people you're interacting with um, through media or in person, tend to be projecting and or are white. Um, or projecting white culture for the most for the most part there are some really really amazing uh, people making a lot of waves and doing a lot of work in this in, in the industry right now I think especially after 2020 to make this not not the norm and again I'm really happy to say that things have been changing a lot um, yeah. <laughs> on on many I think like- I just I just love that that you said that like because I honestly, like you, you hear so many of the headlines are that it's, you know, that it's such a white industry. And I think that just shows the, the perspective shift that's needed, which you just shared very offhandedly. So I just wanted to, you know, underline that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, so I think let's, the, let's, like the, the craziest thing to me with the perspective shift is it's not about like the thing that's always really stood out to me is it's not necessarily about like we need more diversity in wine. We just need to represent the diversity we have. I mean, there's also a massive <laughs> exactly, in other exactly. spaces, but it's not like we're in an industry where, oh, everybody's white and we need to like work on getting. Div- no, I would probably say the majority <laughs> of workers in the wine industry are not white. They just aren't represented. They're not. Yeah, they're not. That's so well said. <laughs> yeah. Very well said. Um, so now you you graduated and you you were about to say uh, I, we so we're shifting to the next phase of your life. What happened next? Which yeah, so I think you've had it, some really cool experiences. Like you mentioned Steve Mathiason, I know you know you you got to work in the vineyard and work with him. So do you, is that where you were headed, or or yeah, what, what's happened? Go ahead. So after. I wasn't, like I said, when I came in, I wasn't really thinking about going into wine. And then once I did this fellowship project and began to realize that I am passionate about wine, it's just kind of like my weird outsider thing. I'm passionate about wine from like this really weird, different perspective than I think a lot of people. Like I I get terrible migraines. We had a conversation earlier about the fact that I can't drink Mm -hmm. um, coffee in the mornings, but I also similarly can't really drink wine without caution. Um, I have to be really careful about getting drunk because I have to be really careful about getting hungover. And wine is not an alcoholic <laughs> beverage that leaves me unhungover. Um, and I'm getting so, to that point too, but it's more, it's not about migraines. It's about, it's about getting old. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, go on. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> um, and so my senior year through this project and through everything, I just realized that what I was really, really passionate about in wine specifically and why I was interested in potentially pursuing a career in wine was because 
the intersection of social justice and environmental justice in the wine industry, I think is a very unique and interesting space. And the reason I think the wine industry is really, really special in this is that it is fundamentally an agricultural space, right? Um, And I think a lot of, there, there is a lot of problematic history in America, but there is an intensity and surprisingly large amount of problematic history that originates in agriculture. Um, mm. And so I think it's like a very interesting space to look at how racism in agriculture spread into other spaces, how a lot of the foundation of, at least in my opinion, that, like I said, there is a lot of ways to cut this pie because it's a big one. Um, but <laughs> there's also just like an interesting to me um there's a lot of history that I had never really known about or thought about that has had really lasting and impactful racist implications into our modern times, including like the fact that farm workers are excluded from the Fair Labor Act, that they don't have a right to overtime pay because they don't have a right to a maximum amount of hours in a day or week. They don't have a right to the same protections against child labor. They don't have a right to minimum wage. All of these like federally, they don't have any of these rights. And I think there's about, last time I looked up back in 2020, um, it, I think it was five states had some form of an amendment law on a state level. Um, and I think maybe there's a couple more now. And back then, some of those laws, like the law in California, was largely superficial. It was a law that said, okay, farm workers get overtime after 60 hours. But I don't think people necessarily realize that 60 hours is six days of 10-hour days. Which is a lot. Especially when it's physical labor. Physical labor. Demanding dangerous physical labor that ultimately doesn't get the same rights, let alone protections, um, because, you know, agriculture is important and farmers need to be able to work with nature. But there's an incredible amount of duplicity and and hypocrisy in this, because on one end, farmers are like, oh, no, we need our farm workers to be able to work a 10 hour day or in other states an endless amount of hour day um, because, you know, there's only a window. There's a short window of when we can get this job done. Maybe it's going to rain and we need to pick the fruit before the rain comes in. And so we need our workers to work 10 hours because it's going to rain tomorrow. But the thing is, when tomorrow comes and it rains, they don't have a job. So what it ever made sense right. to me was like, why do you get to win on both ends? It seems like if it's going to rain tomorrow and I'm not going to get paid, then you should pay me overtime for those two hours that I put in today because of the fact that I'm not going to be working tomorrow. But in <laughs> agriculture, somehow it's just very normalized that like, well, yeah. it's going to rain tomorrow. So I need you to work 10 hours today. You're not going to get any extra pay. Um, despite it getting like significantly more dangerous every hour you work because it is a labor intense job where accidents are dangerous, you know, and or deathly. Um, So like having time limits is important, you know, just like it's important in the factories. Um, And yet the same logic is also what allows me to like not have job security. Right. And, and, yeah, it, it it's funny that we. I mean, you know, those of us who live in California get used to hearing about you know the minimum wage and whatever. But that isn't. I, I what you're saying is for farm workers that isn't at a national level. Yeah, not at a national net level. Luckily, California has passed a law to 
switch farm workers from 60 hour work weeks, which was a previous law that in my opinion was more figurative than substantial (laughs) Um, uh, to now actually having access to 40 hour work weeks. But unfortunately, like all things sad, um, this has actually had, like, I believe this will have a long-term positive impact because you're giving workers more rights, but at least for right now, it's actually impacted farm workers in a somewhat negative way because a lot of companies have reduced farm workers from a 60 hour work week, which is a full-time job where you get health benefits to a 30 hour work week where you're below a full-time job status. You no longer get benefits and now you're working two 30 hour work weeks rather than one 60 hour work week, which, you know, somehow I'm not surprised at all, but it's really sad and it's definitely, you know, again, shows how I think these things are able to exist because we're so separated from this knowledge. And we are so we're just we're, we're living in a society that like actively wipes out everything you could know about who made your food or even w- how your food was made and then replaces yeah. it with these narratives that take away all of the space where you could have maybe discovered this. Um, it's not like I definitely don't think that many people would have, I guess, like come to the same conclusion um, or understanding or knowledge that I ended up with because it's not easy to get there. Like it was an incredibly random, long-term, weird journey that started all the way back from like choosing to go to Davis for probably the wrong reasons. Um, (laughs) Well, so, and that, but that also, okay, so you, this led you to, work in the vineyard for more than you you basically worked through an entire growing season maybe more than one is that true yeah so i worked i worked at the student farm for three years and that was three growing seasons and then because of the pandemic i you know i think like the hardest thing with the pandemic for many of us was the idea of like losing what we thought was the future but you know the future is not real um it's always it's always like a little bit imaginary and so when I saw the pandemic hit I kind of well the first thing I did when I graduated I went and I worked at Quintessa which was a Hispanic owned winery and had a largely Hispanic cellar group actually I was the only non-Hispanic person in the cellar um which was something I wanted and I wanted to continue to to yeah, just be be kind of surrounded and in a space that that had a little bit more Hispanic representation or was a little more authentic to the Hispanic workforce that they had. Um, and then after I finished at Quintessa, I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Traditionally, you would have gone and done another international harvest in the Southern Hemisphere during what would be our winter, but is their summer. Um, right. And I basically just, how would you... I. I kind of became very aware that the pandemic was providing me a very unique opportunity to do something that people don't do, which is go work as a vineyard worker. Now, a number of people from Davis, you know, with their degree will go and choose to do a viticulture internship, but that internship is very, very different than being a field worker. And I specifically went back to Steve Mathiason, who I had worked with in my internship or like in that program that I had developed for the student farm and for students. Um, and I said, Hey, I want to be a field worker. Like I really want to be an actual full blown field worker. Uh, and he 
because he's Steve Mathiason and like crazy like me, I think, um, was totally on board. He's like, yes, that sounds awesome. You should totally do that. So, uh, and, and the reason I say the pandemic was helpful in this is that it one made going and doing an international internship nearly impossible. At least it just seemed like stupidly challenging, um, to try and pursue. (laughs) And the other amazing thing, which, which, the hard thing with having, if I had chosen a vineyard worker job under normal circumstances is that I would have been taking a massive pay cut compared to any other internship I could have been. But since the other, you know, jobs weren't available, I didn't have to deal with the internal dialogue of like, I'm choosing a 15 an hour job when I could be working at 25, you know? Um, and the other like really amazing, great blessing um, was the fact that under normal circumstances, anyone and everyone would have said that I was probably stupid for choosing to work as a field worker. Like, why would you have gotten a degree to go into this? And it shows people's bias, meaningless, you know, manual labor job. And mm-hmm. um, with the pandemic, I really didn't have to face that outsider's opinion because everybody was stuck at home. Everyone was quarantining. Like I was the only person with a real job and I was outside. Everybody's dream was to be outside. So this like terrible job that everyone talked massive shit, showed their bias about, became like this like really amazing space that people were like, man, that's so cool. I wish I was like, wish I was doing what you're doing. And I'm like, well, you could, but also take you changing your mind and like thinking about how you feel about these workers, these jobs and their importance. Um, and I knew like I, I was hundred percent going in. I knew I was jumping in the deep end. It was going to be extremely hard work. Um, it was going to be very demanding. I knew I was still working under the 60 hour a week laws, um, which I'm really grateful for because it, it, it has impacts that you just don't think about. Like you don't have time to do anything besides go home, cook dinner and prepare every meal you're going to eat for the next day because you need to go to sleep and wake up at, you know, 5 a.m. to get to work to only come home at 6 p.m. You're working a basically a 12 hour day yeah. out your commute. Just. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I, I mean, that just that fact alone. Your lunch, if you, you're working a 10 and a half hour job, which gets you close yeah. to 11 before you think about it. Yeah. I mean, like, think about do you have time for civic engagement? No, you know, absolutely. do you have time to for educating yourself in any other way? You know absolutely what I mean? Like this. And I mean, come on, we, it's we such a great point. The pandemic that we don't even have time during a forty-hour work week to truly be engaged with life, let alone our civics. You know, right? So sixty-hour work week. No, you have no time to do anything. Like I was so incredibly lucky that my vineyard coworkers fed me every single day. I, and it was like, I was not shocked by any means by the amount of demand and labor and everything. What I was surprised about was by how incredibly and profoundly rewarding this experience was. Like if I could do anything right now and have it actually like pay and be sustainable economically, I would be a field worker. It is so beautiful. It is, and all of my coworkers were the kindest people I've ever met. Like my, we, my favorite parts of the day, literally the thing, like we would always joke. I felt really bad. There were, there were two other, three other interns. Um, and especially two of the other ones who were, were there, like on the same thing as me, where we worked seller and we worked, 
uh, tasting room and we worked the vineyard. And I felt really bad because I think the other two girls came from the tasting room and they wanted to learn about the vineyard. And I came in being like, I want to be a farm worker, but also like would love the financial support of working in the tasting room because $15 an hour is really bare bones in Napa. Like it gets used up way quicker than you would ever think. Um, <laughs> well, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and so working in the tasting room gave me like a little bit more financial support, which was not something that my field coworkers, vineyard coworkers had access to. You know, they were full blown, always working in the vineyard. Now they had, and I'm very grateful for this. They had better wages than me as an intern. And I have to say, I've worked other internships where I made more as an intern than like full-time staff, which has always been shocking to me. Um, but wow. yeah, they, um, my vineyard coworkers were in like, so I, I felt bad for my, my, my internship coworkers because I, I knew I, what I was getting into. I was like, I want to be a farm worker. And they were very much like, I want to learn about the vineyards. They had no idea they were being thrown in the deep end at all. I think, <laughs> but they, I, but we all, we all ended up loving it. And the way we got through it was through our breaks and through our, like the generosity of our vineyard coworkers consistently and I mean like without fault every day making us food and we would sit on this is the other thing people don't think about like you don't have resources when you're in the vineyard and when I say resources I mean like we would sit on the ground in the dirt between the vines eating lunch because you you don't have a kitchen you don't have a microwave so like you don't have a chair yeah hadn't been feeding me I would have been eating cold food for a whole year because people come out here with their camper stoves, their comal, heat up tortillas, and they have a thermos of warm, like, taco fillings. And we'd eat tacos and mole and just the most delicious food I've ever had. But if I hadn't had them, I, I probably would not have been eating for the whole year or would have been eating, like, a banana, which is not sufficient for a 10-hour agricultural <laughs> day. Um, but I just wouldn't have had the time. I have no idea how they have the time to, like, cook raise children, be engaged, like, but they do. I, I have so much, so much respect. And they're the kindest people. Like I said, fed us every day without fault, you know, all the way to the point that like one of my vineyard coworkers families is going to be taking me and I'm currently in um, Mexico recording this. Um, and they're going to take me in and I'm going to be staying with them. And I've just never met that kind of generosity and kindness and, I don't know. I want to say like familial bonds with people who aren't your family, but are your family now um, outside of working with Hispanic people in the vineyards and or in construction. Mm -hmm. And it's been, yeah. yeah, it's just, I really cannot express how, how utterly, I don't want to say surprised, but like surprised by how beautiful and impactful and valuable this, that experience was, but you know, it also, then, so, Sorry. No, go ahead. Finish your thought, please. Oh, I was just going to say it, it then kind of really helped me understand or connect back to like what I had been learning and learn uh, through my green fellowship. And I think one thing that always really stood out to me in my fellowship project was, you know, I studied biochem. I studied science. I have no background in like understanding social justice or change or policy or any of these things. But the thing that always stood out to me in terms of like why I think the wine industry is powerful in this and what I think everyone has access to in whatever spaces is the idea of narrative and like 
what stories are you being told? Um, what stories is this story covering up? Like who is and isn't included in this? And um, I really started to think about this actually through a conversation with an ex who had been studying Spanish and took like a, a in like one of his Spanish classes, they were talking about narrative. And basically they were talking about how prior to the Spanish Inquisition, um, the government paid like a pretty large amount of money to start publishing really bad stories about the Moors and the Jews and sort of all the people that they ended up sort of attacking. And they basically could not have had the Spanish Inquisition without having told these stories beforehand. And Mm. it just really made me think about how the stories in wine really create the space that you know, continues the problematic aspects of agriculture. Because at the real wine, I think just genuinely does reflect the larger problems in agriculture. But because we have so much narrative, there's also a lot of opportunities to actually address and face and confront these things. And so mm-hmm. I kind of, I think I just had, I had a somewhat bad day in the vineyard where I was tired, frustrated with like, just all of these things, because, you know, being in that space meant taking on sort of some of those systems that don't respect you. And there was a lot of um, experiences in the vineyard that like specifically felt like they were meant to undermine you. They were meant to make you feel inferior or like question your rights, you know, question whether you did something wrong when it was very gaslighting, honestly. Um, And then even like on a on a gender level, and I just remember I had a day where I was like, I know that I am facing like, some gender discrimination, I know I'm in this system that is like not respecting this, this labor, um, because of the like, basically racist foundation. And, uh, And I was really tired. And I like, saw that there was this magazine that was putting out like, hey, do you want to write like for us? And so I wrote and I was like, yes, I want to write a story about all of these feelings about all of these things. Um, And they're like, cool, like, yes, we would love a story about, you know, the aspects of like, racism and and misogyny in wine, you know, or in in agriculture or whatever. And eventually, when I actually went to sit sit down and write the story, I was like, okay, I don't actually, I personally don't really like, um, necessarily talking about the bad things in a way that makes it seem like there aren't solutions because the truth is like none of these problems at least in my opinion in agriculture for the most part none of these problems don't have solutions you know it's not like we're waiting for some technological advantage you know or advancement or something like these are all man-made problems and so I ended up writing the article about narrative and just the ideas of like what are the stories we're told and how can we tell stories that allow us to dress these things that we wouldn't want to be happening? You know, we don't, I don't think we want to be consuming food from people who don't have like consuming food from people who made the food, but can't afford that very food. And I'm not just talking about wine. I'm talking about like the agricultural farm worker experience in California has left many farm workers extremely food insecure, which is insane because California produces food on a national and international level. So we, I don't think anyone likes that. I just don't think many people know it. Right. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, um, what, what has, what have these experience 
especially working with Steve, but also, uh, I mean, working with Steve, obviously he comes from an organic perspective in his farming, but, and then just being in the vineyard, working with the vines, what has that in terms of just agriculture, farming in general, vines specifically shaped your thinking? How, how has it shaped your thinking? Sorry. That's what I meant to say. Um, yeah, working with the vines has had like a kind of profound impact on my life. And I haven't really figured out all the ways yet that it's it's changed me, but it's, it's really, really changed the way I see life and purpose and kind of, yeah, everything, which is a really, really <laughs> random and large response. Um, but it, it's also why I think that if you have the chance to participate in agriculture, I really think you should do it. Um, it connects you to something. I think, I think if I had to sum it up, the biggest thing is that having grown up in America, and I don't know how much this will resonate with everyone, but I feel like I, and the culture taught me to very much feel like an individual. Um, and I think we're aware of that, you know, about the individualness of American culture from like a human and social perspective. But I don't think Mm -hmm. until I worked in agriculture, I realized how much that also means that we are like separate from nature and we are not a part of something larger. And I think being out in the vineyards really, really made it clear to me in a way that I can't necessarily put into words, but I just have this like large sense of knowing that we are a part of something so much larger. Like when you watch a vine grow, just a vine, you know, vines aren't even the most interesting of plants. Like they're pretty simple. They're just trying to get to the top of the tree and like steal that light. Um, And watching that process happen, it just makes you realize just like how much is going on around you, you know, whether it's the plants or even the flow of air, or even just the seasons, you know, being outside for a full year and watching and feeling the seasons change, you know, in a way that you don't even notice, it's, it really was quite profound and made me really aware of just how I think differently we are living in this time, where I don't think there's many people in the history of humanity that have lived as detached from environment and life and nature as we are as Americans, because even having come here, so I'm in Mexico right now. The reason I'm in Mexico is because I wanted to come and learn Spanish. Um, I wanted to learn Spanish for two reasons. One, because I think that the language barrier in agriculture is used to maintain white supremacy. And I felt like if I was going to continue to be in an agricultural space, I really did not want to put myself in a position to possibly reinforce that. Um, So it was really important to me to come and learn Spanish. And I kind of was able to justify and gain the opportunity to come and learn Spanish through gaining a scholarship to take more wine education. And I used that scholarship to take the WSET, which is the Wine and Spirits Educational Trust, which is an international kind of like course. Um, It's pretty similar um, or equivalent to the Master Sommelier group, but it's um, or the Court of Master Sommeliers. But this one is a little bit more on the wine buying side of things rather than, uh, or, or kind of business side of things rather than the tasting and hospitality and attempts to teach you an objective way to taste wine, which I have a lot of problems with 
the idea of losing wine being objective. <laughs> um, because yeah, this does, is all... <laughs> does, does objectivity consider like how your workers are treated, you know, which I would consider a very important aspect to wine quality. Um, but that's, and I think because of that, like hesitancy, I in reality wasn't super interested in pursuing more organized wine education because it feels like it happens within a system that has so many flaws that I don't want to participate in. Like I'm not, I think what I love about wine isn't fully encapsulated by the European centric aspect of wine. And a lot of these certificate programs, you know, because they are trying to create objectivity, you know, they have to put boundaries and their boundaries end up being very Eurocentric. Um, And at least for me in the American wine industry, I don't think that serves me as a wine professional as much as um, maybe being a little bit more open-minded and considering how, there is a really diverse community of wine consumers in our country. Um, and so in order yeah, to... Not to mention wines and very different vines and yes. grapes <laughs> that are native to here. And uh, yeah, the whole There's world... so many levels that we can like, yeah. question <laughs> this structure. So many, so many yeah. levels. And so I came in with this skepticism. Again, I think skepticism might be a theme in my life. Uh, and so, but I'm not... <laughs> no, really, I think... And I love education. And when I have the opportunity to pursue free education... Um, or have support to continue to pursue education, uh, I'm going to take it. And so the WSET seemed like the better of the two options for me. Um, And I basically realized that this was also a unique opportunity to be able to not just take the course, but take the course in Spanish to gain that language, hopefully gain skills to not participate in that like white supremacy through language barriers. And more importantly, also to specifically gain a vocabulary for wine tastings in Spanish to be able to host wine tastings for vineyard workers. Because working in the vineyard last year, one of the more profound takeaways I saw as an industry professional was the way that farm workers aren't included or have access to wine knowledge. Um, They have an abundance of knowledge that is all extremely like you cannot make good wine from bad grapes you can absolutely make bad wine from good grapes but you can't make good wine from bad grapes and if if you had to put a like a a percentage 80 percent of your wine comes from the vineyard or the grapes and then the last 20 percent is the winery and that was what i really 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 loved and respected about matthiasin is they that is 100% at their core. You know, they are making their wine in the vineyard and they're making their wine in their vineyard by paying attention and caring for their farm workers and vineyard workers um, in a way that I don't think is an industry norm at all. Um, And it was, you know, and I have to say like, it wasn't, it wasn't a dream. There was still problems at Mathiasin. Like they still exist within this very problematic, larger space of agriculture. The thing I love about them is that you know, you were able, it was hard, it was challenging, but ultimately everything that wasn't perfect was able to be discussed. And there was an attempt to continue moving forward in a positive direction. And for me, I feel almost more grateful that I worked somewhere where they were willing to move forward rather than somewhere that was just off the bat perfect. Because I think that's like utopia, you know, that doesn't really exist. And It's also what I love about their philosophy in sustainability is it's not a destination, it's a journey, you know, and every time you apply a new sustainable agricultural practice, you end up with 
like another problem, you know, somewhere at some point. And you got to be really creative. And, you know, one day you're never going to arrive at like, oh, I am a finally a sustainable vineyard. Any vineyard that is telling you that they have arrived at like the true form of organics or sustainability is, is not like, that's the first red flag you need to see. Um, because it's not, it's a constant thing, you know, it's okay, great. So we've eliminated the use of synthetic chemicals. Have we eliminated the use of all chemicals? You know, have we thought about the use of plastics in the vineyard? Because there's an ever growing amount of plastics in our land and food and air. Um, and there are plastics that we use in the vineyard that can be replaced with, you know, biodegradable twine. And that's something that Matthias has shifted to in the last couple of years. So, you know, there's always going to be new things. Have you thought about soil erosion or even maybe soil yeah. like microorganisms, you know? So, um, I think that like, I think that really strong moral place of knowing that this is a journey is also what's really allowed them, in my opinion, to be industry leaders on a social and environmental um, platform. And I think agriculture has also taught me that in a way that it's, it's a journey and it's, you know, you're a part of something so much larger. And yeah, it, it just changed my life in ways that I never would have thought and didn't know, like showed me things I didn't know about myself or about the American culture or about how I was raised. Yeah, it sounds, uh, I mean, the way you put it, I think you did capture in words a, a pretty good perspective um from that so thank you for sharing all that that's uh i think there's so many things that you've touched on that i mean i i'm just over here nodding and i don't really have to say anything because i think you've expressed it really well from a perspective of somebody who's lived through it and is living through it and um yeah it's i, I really appreciate your perspective thank you for sharing of course yeah I think what's like, next what's where sorry go ahead oh i was just gonna say i think like the biggest thing for me at least how i feel about things is is there's certain things I, I guess there's certain things that i definitely feel like i haven't seen a lot of people choose like i don't see a lot of people actually i don't know anyone from the program in davis that has chosen to go into field work um and i think everyone in the wine industry should probably spend a year working as a vineyard worker and not just like as a viticulturist or a vineyard intern, like as a vineyard worker, because I think things would change really quickly. Um, but yeah, um, I think that's such that great has... advice. I used to, uh, sorry, I, I used to say that for people who work in hospitality serving wine, I was like, if you really want to know about wine, go make wine, like go do a stage at a winery, like before, like skip getting a quartermaster sommelier certification and just do a stage yeah. you will learn so much more that will be so much like it, it just changes you you know wine in a whole different level when you make it you know what i mean like you just it's not just an academic eurocentric thing like you're talking about it becomes you know you actually have tasted something that is a living process through at every stage in its process and you know what why certain flavors are uh, arise in the wine because of you know, the way it was grown or the way it was made, you know, or certain choices that were made. And I love actually you're taking it even further. And I completely agree. I think just like for, for real change to happen for people to be, I mean, just it, the thing that I always say is like, it's the, if you want to improve wine quality, which I think most winery owners would say that they do, 
it seems like the lowest hanging fruit is that engagement and connection, the bridge between the vineyard and the seller needs to be, it doesn't even need to be a bridge. It just needs to, there needs to be no separation. Uh, you know, just break that down, get the people in the vineyard involved in the seller and vice versa. And I think instantly you will have quality improvement. It's just the lowest hanging fruit. Um, go on. Sorry. Oh, That's my own no, throwing, I, I throwing in my two cents. I 110% agree. And I also think that that separation is like another space of, um, I think like the history of white supremacy in agriculture that you have this very, um, oh man, I'm like forgetting the word that I want. Ah, apartheid. You have like an uh, and you have an apartheid in the white wine industry where the vineyard and the winery and the tasting room are all very separated, and the amount of whiteness from each level or goes down. And because of that, you have these really um really disgusting cultural shifts as well um where like in the tasting room you know I got paid I got paid oh what is it I got paid $25 an hour in the tasting room I used to have the numbers in the off the top of my head I got paid $25 an hour in the tasting room and I got paid $15 an hour in the vineyard which makes Mm -hmm. no sense to me because I worked so freaking hard in the vineyard and it was all (laughs) incredibly skilled labor like you, you know, when you're pruning, like you need to know what you're doing and what you're doing is yeah. going to have an effect for three to seven years. So you don't want to yeah. fuck it up, you know, like it's, it's yeah. really, and just, just even being able to handle working a 10 hour day requires an amount of skill, you know, an amount of skill to be able to go home and cook. Like I didn't even have that skill a whole year in the vineyard. And I never, never could have survived without my vineyard coworkers. Like that was also an unpaid for skill that they were providing um and and yet in the tasting room you know like I had breaks I could you know if we made like a really great sale or or even if we had like a really bad bad um you know experience a challenging tasting uh we could like drink a beer you know or something (laughs) really fun really chill is is a really great work environment it's and I learned a ton of wine um and then you went to the cellar and things were also kind of equivalently, well, basically equivalently white and equivalently fun. Um, it was demanding. It was a lot of work. We were back into physical labor, but there was a lot of respect. There was a lot of knowing. And then there were things in the vineyard where it was like, if you drank in the vineyard, you, it was kind of really frowned upon. Like if it was a hot day and you drank, there was also like a cultural shift, but uh, there was like a time where I kind of got... I got in trouble for having come to work on my day off because my vineyard coworker had invited me to come pick up food that she had made for everyone. And unfortunately on this day, no one had come. So I was like, absolutely. I'm going to come pick up your food. You make us food every day. The last thing I want you to do is like have to throw away your food because this is an incredible service. So for sure, I'll come pick up, come up, come pick up food on my day off. You're feeding me on my day off, which is just insane. Um, And I was like, there's no way I'm showing up empty handed. So I brought a couple beers, brought a couple like sodas, gave it to them, picked up the food. And on my way out, like our vineyard manager confronted me and made me feel like really admonished, really talked down to, um, very uncomfortable. And, um, and ultimately, like, I was pretty sure we were both pretty sure that it was it was the beer, you know, that we weren't supposed to have done that. But I was like, if you say it's the beer, I'm going to call you out on the fact that 
in these other spaces where it's all white people were allowed to drink, but in the vineyard, it were not. And it just happens to be an all Hispanic space. Um, and so I think like wisely, they said that the problem was that I had come on my day off without like telling a supervisor, even though the woman who invited me was my supervisor. So <laughs> very, very like, I mm, have some questions. But you know, it's really sad because when me and my coworker who was kind of my supervisor had a conversation and she was like, oh, do you think we did something wrong? And I was like, absolutely not. 100% this is not how I feel and or am treated in these other spaces. I would not have a single problem if I had done this anywhere else uh, in this in the winery. Um, and she was like, well, don't you think it's bad that like you brought beers? And I was like, no, like, I think it's really not wrong. And like, it would be really wrong if they if they at all tried to make it seem like this was not appropriate in this space. Um, like, I have no problem if you want to say it's not appropriate in all the spaces, which, you know, ultimately, I think they did make a policy change to, to have that. Um, but that wasn't the case at the time. And, uh, and then she turned to me and she said, well, well, Gabriella, you need to understand, like, us Hispanic people, we don't listen to rules. And it was really sad to hear her say that because it just revealed how internalized racism was. And I, I had to like, turn around to her and I was like, no, 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 like, the difference between Hispanic people and white people is we just don't get in trouble when we break the rules. We break the rules all the time. We just don't get in trouble. And it was like this crazy change in her face of just like relief and sort of like no one's ever admitted that before. And it was just like this immediate like unspoken thing of like, yeah, what I just said, I didn't mean at all. But it was the only way that she could make it make sense because clearly this thing this like experience was not the first time that she'd had something like that happen where, you know, it's not, no one's calling it out. No one's going to tell you like, this is racist, but you probably know in your stomach and you find a way to make it make sense. And it, it's not the only time I've had like a Hispanic person basically say that to me, um, like almost verbatim. And like the two or three times it's happened, I've said the same thing, which is like, nope, sorry like this is a white person problem like we we did this like this is not not you and every time it's like I get like literally one time I had one of my friend's father because he was talking about how like more Hispanic people would be more successful in Napa if Hispanic people helped Hispanic people and I was like I'm sorry that's not like white people has specifically created a system where you can't do that like that is not your fault and he literally turned around like five minutes later and was like, I've never had someone tell me that. I really appreciated that. That meant a, a lot to me. And it's just, it's sad that that like, that that exists and that, that, that there's just that much sort of underlying racism that you internalize it to that level. And it, it you know, even just having been in that space as a white person, I started to see it and feel it. Like there was this one day where we had switched our like time card application and um, we we now were doing like a digital time card, but this application was in English. And it was also like a digital technology that was challenging for my vineyard coworkers, um, both from a language and technological perspective. And so we were spending like 15 to 30 minutes after work trying to get our timesheets in. And I was staying behind to help them translate. Like 
oh, we are at this vineyard, you know, this is the English name for this vineyard, because we usually had like Spanish names for the vineyards and then English names, um, you know, or even for like, we'd have to put in like what task we were doing, you know, and some words are easy to translate like podando to pruning. Both start with a P, but there were other words that were like completely different words that even if you tried to look up the same letter, you're not going to find the word in English if you're thinking about the word in Spanish. Um, right. And so it was just very challenging. And so I would stay and help and make sure that everyone got their their timesheets in. But we were staying, like, like I said, about 30 minutes after work, unpaid. Um, and so we were being given five minutes to put in our timesheet, but it was taking us more like 35 to 45 minutes. Um, and so we started taking 10 minutes. Like we would leave the vineyard 10 minutes early to put in our timesheet and still stay afterwards. And I remember one day I saw my vineyard coworkers leaving the, leaving the vineyard. It was, what time was it? It was like, I think we, let's say we got off at four. So it was 3.53. And so I saw them leaving and I was like, oh, cool. It's 3.53. We usually end at 3.50. Cool. I'm going to walk out. And as I'm walking out, I see my vineyard manager coming in and all like at first I'm like, oh, cool. He's walking somewhere. And then I get really anxious. And then he confronts me. He's like, what are you doing? Going, going to put my timesheet in. And he's like, what time is it? And I'm freaking out. I'm like, did daylight savings happen? Like, am I an hour off? Like, what is happening here? Like, clearly I'm doing something wrong, but I don't get it. And I'm like, look at my watch. I'm like, it's 3.53. I should have been done three minutes ago. Like, hmm. And so I'm like, oh, it's 3.50, you know, 3.53. And he's like, well, I only give you five minutes to do the timesheet. And I was like, holy shit. I just worked 10 hours. I'm giving you half an hour of free labor which probably a manager should be doing. So I'm giving, I'm not even just saving you half an hour of my time. I'm half, saving you half an hour of a manager's time helping my, my coworkers. And you're pissed at me because I'm leaving two minutes early. And yeah. you just, you would not face that kind of like over demanding task managing, like time managing management. In, in a winery or in a, it's especially not in a tasting room, for sure, never in a tasting room. But, <laughs> um, and it just, it, it like those little things, I mean, it makes me so upset, like remembering and realizing this because that's, that's the norm. And I was facing this as a white person in this space. So I had mm. like three levels of barriers from what it could have been. And I was in one of the best vineyards in Napa for treating your vineyard workers well. Like specifically everyone in at Mathiasin was working there because they got treated better at Mathiasin than they would have been treated anywhere else in Napa. Or even in California agriculture, to be honest. I'd feel very comfortable making that statement. They were actively there because of the work culture. And these are the experiences I still had. And again, I want to be really clear. Like I am sharing these stories because I think they're profound. I think people don't hear them often, but... This is not like, first of all, I'm very proud to say that Matthiasin took any and every feedback that that gave. Um, and second of all, they live and work within a space that is so much more problematic. Like these problems are not a reflection of Matthiasin. These problems are a reflection of a broken system. No, I can't even say a broken system. A system that was built off of exploitation. And I think that's like a really mm -hmm. fine shift that... I didn't understand previously that this is not an example of something that is broken, right? Because it didn't break. It didn't like happen to get here from someplace that was good. No, this was founded on this kind of labor, 
on this kind of treatment of agricultural workers. And that's why it's so hard and you can't hold, you know, I'm glad that Mathiasen holds itself to really high standards and accountable, but this is not specific to them in any way, shape or form. And like, it makes me scared to tell the story because I feel like people might see it in that way, but you, you can't, like you can't at all. Like I cannot express how profoundly amazing they are and like everyone who's choosing to work there is choosing to do it because they have a notably better work environment it's just that the baseline is so low and I'm holding them to an extremely high standard because I don't think the baseline should be anywhere close to as low as it is thanks for yeah no I appreciate you saying that and giving that perspective that's I mean I think it is important to because I've heard that as well about Mathiasen and and right we want to put it put it in the right context um and and i'm just wondering maybe just a shift for for you to you know i don't want to keep you forever but like what's next like what what have these experiences i mean what have they what direction have they propelled your life into so at this point i mean obviously you're in mexico that's one one direction they propelled you um but you know where do you see yourself going um I think for me, at least right now, I've become uh, very comfortable with accepting that what I'm most interested in and most looking for right now is is knowledge and learning and growth. And I don't have a specific um, destination in mind. I really feel like if I was trying to get somewhere, I would miss this like really valuable time in my life where I can learn. And I think everything that I have done so far has been this like, you know, random chance thing that I got thrown into because I learned something that caused me to think about something in a new way that caused me to research something that caused me to say something that someone else wasn't saying. Um, And so I feel like I'm really comfortable um, right now at this point in my life, continuing in that space um, and just continuing to try to put myself in as many spaces to gain as much knowledge as possible from as many perspectives as possible. So I'm looking to find more scholarships to continue to take the W set in Spanish. Cause I still, I think there's like one of the reasons why I think there's so much of it, like an apartheid in wine in terms of vineyard to winery is because vineyard workers don't get access to wine knowledge and wine education. And so I really, really feel, um, like that's something I, I feel like I personally can make a, an impact in my small spaces by, you know, gaining this, um, this knowledge and these skills and being able to host in Spanish. I think it's a great decision, like economically, because I think Hispanic wine consumers are one of the more interesting wine consumers or segments of the market um, in general. But then I also think that being able to give access to free tastings to vineyard workers in the way that other wine professionals have access to, you know, as a sommelier, as a winery worker, as a tasting room host, you can call just about any winery or email any winery in the world and say, hey, I would love to come visit you. Do you offer trade tastings? And the majority of them will say like, yes, we're available on busy days or this time or whatever. And sometimes even the winemaker will come and give you um, a tour you know, or you'll get someone who really knows the wines very intimately or is in alignment with your passion. Um, but I have never in the entire year I was hosting at Mathiasen, I think I would say something like Mathiasen again is great in offering these industry tastings. I think I did maybe like 
anywhere from 20 to 30% of the wine tastings I did last year in person were industry tastings and not a single one of them was a farm worker. And when I went to wine conferences, not a single person in the conference was a vineyard worker. And so I think there's a lot of progress to be made um, in that space. And so I would really love to continue to basically develop my skills as a a wine educator through these courses um, and also the language skills that would be needed to open up that space and create. Because I think like farm workers have so much knowledge about you know, great quality that translates into wine quality, they would make fantastic wine, winery workers. Um, And I think, like you said, that's some really low hanging fruit that our industry could immensely benefit from. But I think the reason we don't is because it then means that vineyard co-workers knows, know what it feels like to work in a winery and or in a tasting room, and they will be having the same kind of anger and outrage that I had because I was someone with the privilege of having known what it felt like to work in more privileged spaces. And they don't, and therefore they don't have the ability to call it out or say like, this isn't normal. They don't have the context. And that's, I think, very strategic. Um, so that, That's a really great insight. Um, Gabriella, thank you so much. This is like... I mean, I honestly, we could continue to talk for a long time, but I, I want to make this a an episode that <laughs> is within the realm that people will actually listen to in terms of length. Um, did is there any um, further like you know resources that you want to put out there? Or I know you know you're not you know you don't have wine to sell, you don't have a book to sell, or anything like I said at the beginning. But it, I mean, if you know, I don't know if you want people to get in touch with you to with follow-up questions or just if they want to interview you for their own purposes for their, you know, whether it's trade or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I 110% invite anyone to reach out to me. I am very lucky in that I am the only Gabriella Fontanesi in the world. So if you find my name, it's me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So it's not too hard to find me. And um, absolutely. Like I, 110% will admit that like I have an amount of like um what do you call it like fear you know fear with talking truth to power or just expressing things that maybe people don't want to have said but every time I've ever had that little bit of fear I've also had the like exact opposite reaction where I met my community and met my people who want this and also see this and the reality is I think the vast majority of the wine industry wine professionals um wine consumers all want to see these changes happen um and I think the biggest thing holding us back is that fear for sure at least in my opinion and so I 100% invite anyone to reach out with any questions any interest at all it makes me feel more capable of sharing in this way um, when I hear that people are interested in this conversation um, and or I also invite anyone to start taking you know whatever small little steps you know just follow that question because uh, so far this adventure I mean you're like you said you're talking to someone who doesn't have a wine who doesn't have a book doesn't there's really no reason that you should be talking to me other than I've followed some pretty interesting questions and I think 
anyone and everyone can do that. And it can be in your small way, whether it's your vegetable, your food, your wine, one specific tiny little question. Um, it's, you know, it's like turning over a rock and finding a whole world. Under, um, yep. And I, yeah, yep. I think, I think everyone can do that. And I think that these changes are more than abundantly possible. And I think really there are things that hold these changes back. They want to happen. And we just have to figure out like what, what are the little things like, whether it's taste hosting wine tastings in Spanish and making farm workers aware that they are welcome and accepted and valued in these spaces that I think will have a really long-term impact. I love that. Well, thank you again. This has been fantastic. And you made my job easy because you said everything so wonderfully. I, I didn't even have to prompt you in any direction. So thank you so much, Gabriela. It's been great talking. It's been great talking to you as well. Thank you.